0: Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. You know, every week I start the same thing. I said, I'm glad you're with me because there's so much happening. I remember chatting with Luke Grohman back in February saying, I personally had never remembered a time where I had to keep my eye on so many different financial stories. And uh, again, that certainly held true. And it's no truer than this week. And again, we've got to watch interest rates. I'll do that with Mike Levy coming up. Do it with Ozzy Jurek about the impact on the housing market and Victor Dare and the stock market. I also have Tyler Bolhar of the stockstores.com coming on. I mean, lots to talk about. When do you buy? When do you sell? It's important stuff. And of course, I've got a quote of the week. I've got a goofy award that's so deserved that's going to get somebody's blood boiling, I'll tell you. And of course, I've got some shocking stats. But let me go start with this. We got a half point rise, half percent rise in the Bank of Canada rate this week. You know what it means, though? Since March 1st, the rate has increased 1,500 percent, along with an inflation rate that's over three times higher than the bank's target, which exposes, I think, and this is what really bothered me, uh, the profound vacuity of the Prime Minister's glib remark during last federal election when he said, when I think about the biggest, most important economic policy this government, if elected, re-elected, would put forward, You'll forgive me if I don't think about monetary policy. Like, are you kidding? We've got generational inflation. We've got interest rate increases that are a direct result, both of them, of monetary and fiscal policy. We had, by the way, recently, the former head of the Bank of Canada, Liberal stalwart Mark Carney, along with respected economist, uh, University of Calgary, Jack Mintz, and Bank of Canada governor right now, Tiff Macklin, they all stated that inflation in Canada is far more a product of domestic factors, not international. And it all starts with increasing the money supply, the amount of money in the system by 27% in just two years. Then you had the government's fiscal policy. That featured sending checks to, what, just about everyone, regardless of whether they are impacted financially or not by the pandemic. And all of that money was borrowed. And at the same time, you had the Bank of Canada manipulating interest rates to record lows. And all of that money was chasing fewer goods because of supply chain problems. And by the way, let's throw in also, there was obvious pent-up consumer demand because of COVID restrictions. Come on, that is a textbook recipe for inflation. And how the central bank and the government didn't see it coming is literally beyond me. But now we have the Bank of Canada trying to dampen demand by raising interest rates. Since March 1st, we got a prime rate that's more than doubled. you got mortgage rates doubling, home equity loans, cost of all borrowing. Remember I said doubling. And the result is that virtually every one of us has seen our net worth fall significantly. And it's not done yet. You want a shocking stat? New report by RBC Economics says the downturn in real estate stock and bond markets, which are a direct result of monetary policy, means that Canadians could see a 1.6% trillion-dollar drop in our net worth, all of it erased in the coming quarters. Homeowners have seen, what, a 15 to 20% drop in the value of our homes? Well, the bond mark's looking, looking at the biggest annual drop in history. I mean, none of that's good news, by the way, for pensions. And there's no sign, by the way, that the decline in asset prices is over. We've got a nice bounce in some of them. Well, not real estate, but I'm thinking bonds and stocks. But we don't see the sign that it's actually over. And certainly the consequences aren't. And the combination of inflation and massive jump in interest rates, well, my point is it's having a huge impact on a variety or a number of Canadians. And I'm not sure what the Prime Minister meant, by the way, when he said the biggest, most important economic policy this government, if reelected, would put forward. Because he hasn't given us any specifics. One year later, we still don't know. But nothing that they can do is going to have anywhere... Uh, near the impact that we've seen with the rising cost of living and rising interest rates. I mean, the list just keeps going on, but I want to make something perfectly clear. I started by pointing out the prime minister's nonchalant attitude toward monetary policy, but he is not alone. He may be the head of the government, but come on, the vast majority of us in the public, politicians, commentariat, we don't really think about or worry about monetary or fiscal policy. And as I said several times, I, I haven't got over that last fall during the, uh, the election campaign. We had a leadership late and nobody talked about the economy or government borrowing or record debt, any of that kind of stuff. No, certainly no talk about what happens when interest rates rise. Instead, we focus on things like empty sloganeering. Maybe it's climate change, other social, social justice issues. And I'm saying that comes at a cost because the bottom line is I'm worried. I'm worried we're facing a systemic problem due to to record government and individual debt levels. And the sharp moves in interest rates, you've seen it in stocks, you've seen it in currencies. They're a symptom of a more fundamental problem with our financial system. And as I say, and I said it for years, the problems with the massive debt buildup was going to be felt first in the credit and currency markets. It wasn't going to be the economy. All that talk about the debt was affordable without providing any caveats. I think that's going to be challenged directly in the next year. I mean, it was either irresponsible or, you know, that is along with that like kind of declaration that tr- inflation was transitory, it's incompetent. But I'm worried about your finances. I'm trying to encourage you to be equally worried. Pay attention. We're going to get more tightening from the Bank of Canada. And I think ultimately they're going to try and paper over any credit problems, any debt problems. And that means the purchasing power of your currency is going to decline. That's what we're here to protect. We can no longer afford to glibly dismiss monetary policy or government borrowing or spending policy. It's already impacting. And I think severely, a huge number of Canadians, maybe over 50%, but we're nowhere near the end of it. Hey, just a reminder, by the way, Uh, We've got the World Outlook Conference. Next week, we're going to kick off the ticket sales. So I want to make sure you know that. But I want you to stay tuned. As I say, quote of the week, Tyler Bullhorn, Goofy Award. Oh, the list is a huge one. And I am glad you're with us because we are going to do our best to keep you informed and help protect you in the coming tumultuous years. I want to bring Mike Levy in right now. Obviously, people are focused on the central bank and on interest rates, Mike.
1: Well, they, they absolutely are. And of course, what happened this week, Mike, is all expectations were for a 75 basis point jump. Uh, the, the Bank of Canada, we talked last week, week before, is they had telegraphed that because they want to be so transparent. Well, apparently uh, they wanted to be transparent up until about a week ago because they changed their mind. They went to a 50 basis point. And I think for very good reason. Yeah, my take on that, and of course, everybody's going to weigh in because
0: they didn't really make it explicit, at least in a way that the market believes. But my take on it is they were just buying time. We we have had a significant slowdown in certain sectors, obviously real estate leading the way, you know, on that most interest rate sensitive of those sectors. And I think they thought, you know, we don't want to overdo it. You know, the big fear they have is a hard landing, a strong recession. Because in their statement, they admitted the. Uh, the you know, they said, yes, we expect a slowing economy right through next year. So I've I, I just sort of guessed they bought themselves till December when they meet. I think it's December 7th off the top of my head. And they have yeah. to make another interest rate announcement. So I, that's my take on it, that nothing really changed because they could always bump it up again in December. They,
1: they really could. But to me... I, I think it was a smart move, Mike. I think the US Fed's going to do 50 basis points. Also, that's my take on it. But the Bank of Canada could actually come through with 25 basis points because what they, they, they don't mind slowing down the economy, but they don't want it to come off the rails. And I think there was some sense within the Bank of Canada that it might have been coming off the rails. However, if you listen to some of Canada's politicians, Uh, what the Bank of Canada is doing is dead wrong and they couldn't be on a worse track and there's no merit to what they're doing. But uh, that's the political bent and we see that all the time. That's because they don't have to be accountable. The Bank of Canada (laughs) does.
0: Yeah, well, and they should be accountable for calling it transitory right through last December when they changed because I think it was pretty obvious it wasn't. We already had energy problems. We had food problems. But also, you know, come on. Pumping, but that wasn't the bank's fault, but I think they still should have adjusted to it. The government pumping so much money into the system, 27% increase, though, in money supply, as I alluded to at the top of the show. I mean, this is a monetary phenomena and fiscal phenomena. They went hand in hand, and I think that was just too much dynamite for the system. When, you, when you've when you got supply shortages. So yeah, I think the Bank of Canada is culpable that they didn't move sooner on rates. Do you remember when Ozzy was crying when they didn't a few times? You know, oh, yeah. he, he was desperate for them to raise rates in the fall, but they didn't, they kept holding off. So I think they own some of that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's the blame game right now. So let's all jump on the central bankers.
1: Well, there, there there's two that I'd like to sort of bring to mind. One is Pierre Polyev. And uh, he said straight out that he'd fire the governor of the Bank of Canada if he was prime minister. Huh? Well, meanwhile, um, he said that and he doesn't want to be called on it. So he hasn't had an open press conference for 47 days. But that's the story and that's done. Jagmeet Singh, I mean, I just keep shaking my head. He said the Bank of Canada's approach to interest rates, interest rate increases, has absolutely no merit. He said, the causes of inflation which drive up costs are the war in Ukraine, issues with the supply chain, and corporate greed. And then he comes out after this and says, no, it's all corporate greed, and it's price fixing. And, uh, Mike, I, I just continue to think, like w- where. I guess he doesn't have to be accountable to anybody because there's so many questions in what he says, and I've got to tell you, what he's saying has no merit.
0: Well... I- you know, let's start with prices are all impacted by the war in Ukraine. That was, that's not, you know, you can supply too much evidence that the energy price increases were started in September, continued October. Uh, you know, this time last year, oil was above 80. We were having, you know, protests about gas prices in November that had nothing to do with Ukraine. So that's, that's a bit of a red herring on that. Convenient for all politicians to blame some external factor. But the other side is this, and it's tough in the grocery business, and I think the grocery business deserves to own some of it because you remember, Mike, that bread price fixing scandal going back just a couple of years. Well, that certainly opened the door for people to think everything is a price-fixing scandal. So they have to wear at least a little of that, but it's just too unsophisticated for me. The grocery business is far more complex. The impact of inflation, impact of higher energy prices, far more varied and complex than some sort of simplistic explanation that it's corporate greed.
1: But, oh, yeah, fair enough, because that, that, that is something, that bread price fixing, and you can hang a hat on it. You just can't hang every hat in the room on it. And, and I mean, it, it just can't be that way. And, you know, when he comes out and he says the punishing price, rise in grocery prices in Canada this year can come down to only one of two things, price fixing or profiteering. Well, that's not what's causing the overall inflation, Mike. You saw gas prices shoot up. You saw other grocery prices. You saw prices for services. You saw it doesn't matter what it is. Inflation was involved, and that's a huge part of the problem.
0: I think you're right on. I mean, obviously wages have gone up an average around 5.4% as an example. Uh, but as you said, transportation costs, you know, manufacturing costs have gone up. So the manufacturer passes that along too. You know, it's interesting. Do you remember, I'm going back, I guess it's a couple of months. We had Sylvain Charlebois on, you know, he's the director of Dalhousie's Agri-Food uh, you know, Clinic there. They're, they're the ones that are sort of the go-to expert When you talk about uh, the food industry in Canada and food pricing. So this is, you know, he made a couple of great points in discussing this. And one is you can't use numbers. Like, let's say we're saying they made 900 million this year and 700 million last year. It's got to be percent because what if they sold way more goods and services, you know? So, of course, that raw number is going to go up. And he says that it hasn't really changed. I mean, in quotes, Two percent five years ago does not look like two percent today. Uh, You know, and he he looked and they studied, you know, Loblaws and Metro and Empire. And in his words, he didn't find any evidence of greenflation or abuse or profiteering at all in the last five years. Well, that's a guy who's not beholden to any political philosophy or interest group. You know, I welcome any study because I'd love to see, you know, the more information the public has, you can make your own determinations on this. But, uh, you know, he, his word holds a lot of credibility with me. I mean, that's what these guys do. They're the people, uh, you know, at Dalhousie that we always quote because they do such extensive studies. And he says he didn't find any inf- uh, evidence of greenflation. And, you know, again, let's have a study then and let's let's go further on it. But at least I don't think we have to jump to the conclusion, as you said, Mike, it's so simplistic as just one word. Somebody got
1: greedy. Well, you know, he he goes after the oil and the energy companies, too. And they say, you know, greedy profits and uh, nobody looks back. Several years ago, when oil was 40 and $50 a barrel and the companies couldn't stay in business, of course they're making a profit now. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't be heating our houses. We wouldn't be running our cars. Uh, excessive profits... All right. Well, how about excessive losses? I'm not saying that they're not marking things up a little more than what the market will bear. That's fair enough. You can say it about most any industry when things are going really good, they can grab a few extra dollars. But if you're going to do that, look in the rear view mirror and see how they fared when things weren't so good and they weren't making the profits. And let's just take a broader look instead of just tiring everybody with the same brush. Yeah, and I appreciate that it's politics and they're looking for a bumper sticker
0: slogan, you know, that they can stick on. And, you know, uh, greed presses people's buttons, whether I'm complaining about some expenditure at the government level, you know, or whether I'm saying it's about companies or what have you. But I'd make a plea for this. It's, as you said right away, Mike, this is a complex study with huge implications for our lives in a lot of different areas. And if we stick to food for a second. It's so clearly there's other variables involved. And I think it's important that we understand them, just like, by the way, with high gasoline prices, when a lot of people don't understand the the impact of refineries or the clean energy policies, you know, what they have on gasoline. You know, and politicians love to simplify. I just don't think it does justice to the subjects and informs us well enough.
1: Yeah. And let's just add, while we're talking about gasoline, the terrible taxes that government take And everybody is paying more, so it just doesn't end up in the genes of the oil companies.
0: Oh, absolutely. There's no one who makes more money without risk than government when it comes to gasoline, for example. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Have a great week. You too, Mike. Thanks. Time now for the quote of the week. Nouriel Rabini is an economist who teaches at New York's University Stern School of Business. He's the founder and chairman of Rabini Global Economics, but here's the thing. he is best known for his warnings well in advance of the coming subprime mortgage crisis. I remember him talking about it in 2006 that hit in 2008. In his new book though, a brand new one just released October 18th, Mega Threats. He warns of, in his word, we're heading for a stagflationary crisis unlike anything we've ever seen. That means, you know, inflation is going to continue and it's going to far outstrip economic growth, even with the economy may in fact get negative, you know, go into recession. But the implications for individuals are huge. And that's the kind of thing we've been focusing on on money talks for the last several years. But this is a pivotal dilemma that the central banks face. And I think, So far, not particularly appreciated by governments. And that is, in quotes, As a share of global GDP, private and public debt levels are much higher today than in the past, having risen from 200% in 1999 to 350% today. Under these conditions, rapid normalization of monetary policy and rising interest rates will drive highly leveraged households, companies, financial institutions, and governments into bankruptcy and default. End of quote. Well, I think he's absolutely right. You know, I hear comparisons, for example, of the inflation story to the 70s. Well, my first thought is you don't understand the debt context. 350% right now, uh, debt to GDP. Unbelievable. We already know, by the way, from the Parliamentary Budget Officer here in Canada, that federal debt servicing costs are going to double over the next five years. But there's going to be companies and individuals, some, as I talked with Ozzy about, we uh, will talk with him about uh, renewing their mortgage at double the rate. Well, they're not going to be able to afford it. Some businesses are going to go under. It's going to be huge stress for some individuals who've borrowed, let alone the massive trillion dollar losses in the bond market. Uh, threatening, uh, well, shaking the credit markets right now. But here's the other thing. If they don't raise rates, demand's going to continue to push prices higher, given we still have supply chain challenges and we still have energy problems. I mean, raising rates and tightening monetary policy are the only tools that a central bank has to subdue some, at least, that dem- demand side of inflationary pressure. But as I said, that's not the supply. That's not going to fix energy, not going to fix supply chains. But the central banks are aware of the problem. But that doesn't mean that there's going to be a proverbial soft landing. They want there to be. Instead, many in the market are simply just sitting there waiting for something to break if they keep on raising rates, much like what happened in the UK pension system just three weeks ago, which forced the Bank of England to step up. This is one of those old serial programs you got in the 1940s, 50s that says, to be continued. Pleased to have with me Tyler Bullhorn again. Uh, Tyler, first of all, I do appreciate you finding time. Uh, you're the author of a great book that I'm going to recommend, The Mindless Investor. But actually, I do better than that. I'm going to tell him how to get a copy of it for absolutely free. But you can find Tyler at StockScores.com. StockScores.com. Tyler's a guy who's uh, trained half of Canada in how to look at markets. You know how to time markets, when to sell, when to buy, what things he's looking for. And I think the, the, the great thing about it is it's so straightforward that you don't have to worry if you say, well, I don't have any experience in this stuff. Well, uh, as I say, Tyler does a great job explaining some simple rules. And I think this is a time for those rules, Tyler. I mean, we've seen such volatility in the market. People got a ton of questions. You know, uh, you know, we've seen this major bounce in some of the stocks, at least, uh, you know, in the marketplace. And people go, well, is that the beginning of a huge move? Or should I have been in? Should I have been out? You know, there's just so much of that gone on li- literally
2: over the last several years. Yeah, the market has certainly had lots of volatility, and this year, after two great up years, this year has been one of the worst for the market. It's, I think, down around 25%, but it is beginning to show some signs of recovery, and uh, hopefully with prices back to more rational levels, we can uh, see that recovery continue. Obviously, you know, a decent move on Friday in Apple, but at the same time, some of the other tech names still struggling, so you really have to be a stock picker as the market attempts to make that bottom, and uh, risk management is paramount.
0: Yeah, it's amazing, though, where you see the fallout of Amazon dropping, uh, you know, uh, Facebook meta was, you know, dropping dramatically, and some of those valuations, because, I mean, a few months ago, we would have chatted about, you know, the more high-flying tech stocks and how the bottom fell out of those. And, man, we've moved to the senior level, which were dominant, you know, up to this point. So, yeah, it's a bit of a confusing time for a lot of people.
2: Yeah, and it demonstrates the importance of having a process and a methodology for knowing when to sell those high flyers and also for when to buy the bargains. And I think that there are starting to be some bargains in the market. You know, another tech name that really got pummeled in the last year is Netflix, but it too is starting to turn and you're starting to see turns in uh, maybe some of the tourism stocks, things like airlines and cruise lines. So You just got to know what to do. And it's not that hard. There's a very simple pattern that repeats itself over and over when stocks are making bottoms, uh, breaking downward trends. How do you know when the downward trend is being broken? Because of course, you know, trying to catch a falling knife is, is a bad idea. And so I always like to find the, the predictive bounce off of the lows as opposed to buy the lows.
0: Well, also I want to tell people that, uh, you're going to do more of this and it's going to be visual because you're going to do a webinar right after the show you know on uh you know depending on when you're listening of course but if you are listening on Saturday morning it's going to be 10:15 Pacific time 11:15 mountain time and uh all you have to do is sign up at mikesmoneytalks.ca obviously it's limited we can't handle that many people uh but I would invite people to do it because you can actually see some of the tools that Tyler uses you know and analyze with him you know, where where he saw the turn and and how you can identify that turn. Uh, You know, the trouble is we can sit here and we can say on a fundamental basis, boy, I can see reasons why it might be getting a little better, you know, out there. And I can see reasons why it's, you know, uh, it's climbing a wall of worry. That's for sure. If you're looking at geopolitical events, for example.
2: Yeah, you know, but so much of that has been priced in. Now, I still think there's always the abnormal event that could come down the tube, you know, Putin were to obviously use a nuclear weapon that would be devastating for markets. but the market's very good at taking all available information and pricing that in. And you know we know that there's you know a military uh, situation in the Ukraine. We know that interest rates are rising that it, inflation is high and that's why the markets are down 25%. A lot of that has been priced in. The question then is did we get irrational to the downside? Did fear take over and cause people to accept prices that are too low? I think generally speaking, that's not the case. But in some areas, in some stocks, we are starting to see those turns. And again, I go back to the travel stocks. Obviously, they were really devastated by COVID, but the numbers are starting to get better and the charts are also improving. And and that's because the people with the best information, you know, those large Institutional investors—they're the ones who start to buy because they have better information than, you know, the normal person who's listening to CNBC or, or just the mainstream media. Um, those things tend to trail the market, not predict the market.
0: Well, and one group I, I, I wrote down that I wanted to ask you about in that vein, uh, because you know, I've been bullish on energy uh, because of the shortages, the lack of capital investment, you know, at some point, and I wasn't worried because I'm not a trader as much as, you know, I'm an investor. So I, I you know, I, I was sort of adding to energy stock positions, especially in Canada, because I just thought the value was there, but I didn't care if they moved one year or two year or three year. But what are you seeing in the energy stock sector? Uh, you know, uh, are you seeing that kind of bottoming sign or interest increasing?
2: Yeah. So this is a great example of how you know, visually I can show something real simple. So I will do this in the webinar uh, after the show today. But the, the oil market, if we sort of start with oil, really went parabolic to the upside. Now, when I say parabolic, I mean that it curved upward. It was going up very steeply. And that was you know, coming into this year. It did that. And anytime a trend goes parabolic, and runs away from its trend line, it typically pulls back to it. It's such a reliable rule. And I think that's why we saw some weakness in oil through most of this year. However, what has happened in the last few weeks is that we've gone through that process of rationalizing oil prices. They've come back to the trend line and they bounced off of it two or three weeks ago. And so now you see the mentality changing around oil and gas stocks. And we've seen the energy stocks do very well in the last few weeks. And I think that that's likely to continue. I actually think that they never really priced in the the level of oil prices because people just had such a cynicism surrounding energy stocks, given the performance that they had in the last five years, let's say. And so I think that they remain in many cases undervalued. And we're starting to see the buyers come back because oil prices have stabilized and started to move up again. And I think that that's something likely to continue.
0: you know it's a, a tough concept for people or some people, if they don't have experience, to appreciate that the story's priced into the marketplace like it, it's it's you've already assumed that uh, the Baltimore Ravens were going to beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. you know you've already make it made you're making assumptions like right now, part of this rally would be uh, some major money, assuming that the end is closer for the rise in rates, you know, for the end of, you know, yes, we are going to get another one, but you know, it looks like some people are betting already that that's sort of going to slow down, you know, that we've had that abrupt move. And that's a tough concept that people bet. Um, you know, it's already factored in, as you said, into the market price. You
2: know, it is a tough concept until you start to look at a chart and, and with a few simple skills. And you know, on the matter of interest rates, that's another one that went parabolic to the upside. So what does that mean? That means there was fear and panic around interest rates. So the U.S. Treasury bond market sold off sharply. That causes a sharp rise in real interest rates, like what is actually traded in the market. And so the market is really priced in central banks raising rates. That's been the process for the last year. That's why the U.S. dollar has gone up so much in the last year. Now you're seeing some rationalization of it. In the past week, we saw that parabolic Trend or interest rates pull back, and we saw the U.S. dollar pull back. It's super obvious when you look at a chart, but if you're, you know, reading your Globe and Mail or again CNBC, they, they don't they don't talk about that because the news and the mainstream news always trails reality. That's why they're useful as a contrary indicator well that's
0: that's a great example. I'm going to borrow it now because that that makes it very clear, yeah, of course, what the newspapers are doing in the media is reporting on something that's already happened. They're too late you know for it, and I think that's a key concept uh to understand but the you know the other side I know that you emphasize a lot, and you'll do it in the webinar coming up you know uh as I say uh at uh, 10, 15 Pacific time, 11:15 mountain time. I mean, you just have to go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, but you'll be able to talk about this as, as, as of course, managing your risk. And one of the things you talk about, of course, uh, I'll sum it up by saying when to buy, when to sell, you know, <laughs> key things right. that are difficult for some people.
2: Yeah. And it's, and it, the hardest part is when to sell at a loss. And, you know, every time I take a trade and I've done this for 32 years, I always think about losing. I don't think about making. And then I examine, okay, what is my downside versus what is my upside? Because there's a lot of trades where, you know, it looks likely to go higher, but if the risk doesn't match the reward potential, then it's not a suitable trade. And I always like to see double the upside for my downside. And every time I make a trade, I know where the exit doors is to take a loss. And the reality is 30, 35% of the time I lose. The reality of trading. If you don't come into the game with that attitude, then you will end up taking big losses, and that's what crushes your performance overall.
0: But uh, a key point there, I want as a takeaway, is that you already know where your exit point is. You know, you're not going to be buffeted by the emotions of that moment. Which, uh, you know, I've learned that the hard way. I mean, I'm an old guy, thank God. So I'm starting to talk decades ago. But I, I did learn that the hard way. You know, I didn't have my my number in my mind. If it trades at X, I'm out. And then, you know, it gets down there. It's because there's usually a lot of emotion going on in the markets, you know, and I was part of that. And that was an expensive lesson, by the way. You should have been doing seminars back then, or webinars. Then I could have at least signed in. But the point's just so important, though, that you already know what your exit point is.
2: Yeah, and you have to pick the right point. You know, a lot of people understand the concept of limiting downside losses, but they'll do something arbitrary, like if the stock goes down 10%, I'm going to take a loss. But that isn't really the right way to do it because every stock has its own volatility. Obviously, Apple is less volatile than a biotech company. And so to use an arbitrary number like 10% is a little bit foolish. What you have to do and what I'll show today is pick the support price, the exit door at a place where the market has established a floor. And if it goes through that floor, it's because there's something wrong. You know, I I buy stocks, sometimes, you know, they they might have a 20% drawdown, but they don't get near their floor. Other times, it's a 4% move to the downside, and they're penetrating that floor. And so using the difference between your entry price and the floor is how you size your positions. And I'll go through the math of that. It's not very complex, but it's a lot easier when I can show people. And ultimately, every stock, whether it's a penny stock in the mining sector or Microsoft, we make them all have the same amount of risk. We just buy much smaller positions in the more volatile stock and bigger positions in the larger cap
0: Yeah, you said something else that I want to just come back to because I found it, you know, people ask me obviously a ton of questions. One of the most difficult, I know people in the business who are responsible, who are risk, you know, managers, hate it when a stock goes parabolic. And that's the market we were in because you know that what goes up Is going to have its turn down, you know, and now, of course, we're seeing it very evidenced, but I just know it was very tough for for people because it still can go up further, you know. So the guy says it was at five, it's now at 55. It's just you can't recommend it because of the risk is building as it moves like that. Uh, Just really tough,
2: yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hold parabolic trends, but I am dancing close to the exit door because someone's going to yell fire and I wanna be the first one out in that parabolic trend. And again, what is a parabolic trend? It's a little bit hard for people to understand that. It's so much easier just to see it. So yeah. I'll show some examples of that.
0: Well, as I say, we, we certainly lived it. And, and boy, oh boy, has there ever been some punishment on that side? I mean, as I say, now we're getting it in Facebook or Meta, you know, we're getting it to Facebook. But before that, my gosh, some of those ones at the tech se- sector without earnings, you know, with revenue promises, my gosh, they just went to the sky. They grew to the sky and now they're right back on the ground. I mean, you don't recover from that stuff. And that's why I'm always so risk emphasizing, you know, manage your risk. And that's what you do with your techniques. And that's why I'm keen on people taking advantage of of that. Just what are your techniques for limiting the risk? How do you know your exit point? That kind of stuff. And what's amazing, and I think you do a fine, just such a fine job at this, is it's not tough to get one. Just know that you need one. You know, and then here the techniques to get it. So
2: yeah. yeah. And, you know, I always say if you can draw straight lines with a ruler, you're, you're well on your way to understanding how to manage risk effectively. And also how to pick the hot stocks because those same techniques can be used to find the stocks that are going up that are unexplainable. You know, you're not reading yeah. about them in the media because, again, the media reacts, the market predicts. And I want to show people how to use the market's trading action to predict the next hot stock.
0: Yeah, as you say, all you need is a ruler and, you know, and observational skills, you know, that's what it's important. But I I guess my big thing is people just absolutely do need techniques. They can't just be winging it, you know, the whole time. And that's how you lose uh, big money. And there is money being made and money being lost, you know, in this marketplace. Do you, uh, again, when you look at the overall market trend, though, sort of the macro trend, and as I say, I'll talk more with Victor Adair about this coming up as we've had, you know, just a huge jump off that, uh, October 13th seemingly a bottom at that point. I'm not sure how long that that rally lasts. You know, I mean I wish I had a crystal ball that could help me with that, but I think that'll be significant.
2: The pattern I look for I call it my crash reversal pattern and it has three stages. It has a break of a downward trend line, the build of a rising bottom which means the local low is a little higher than the previous low, and then a break up from the rising bottom. And you know, this pattern repeats itself over and over and over again as a way to find the bottom. What's key though, is you have to use it on different timeframes. A day trader, or a very short term trader is going to use that pattern looking at an hourly chart or even a 15 minute chart. A position trader, where someone's holding for a few weeks or even months is going to apply that to a daily timeframe. And then of course, the long-term trader does that on a weekly timeframe. So we saw that pattern, you know, mid-October on the very short term time frame. And then last week we saw that on the daily time frame. We have not yet seen that on the weekly time frame. And so what will happen is we're going to get this little rally. We've had it going here for a week or two. We're going to get up to that weekly downward trend line. And that's where it's really judgment day, because we've had a number of attempts at breaking that weekly downward trend line and they've all failed so far. So my, you know, when I put out a bullish recommendation in the last few weeks, it's really been a short-term recommendation with awareness that the long-term picture still has work to do. And so I don't want anyone to think, jump into the the market fully immersed. I think it's a good time to dip your toe here and there, take some positions. But, you know, I'm still mostly in cash waiting for those longer-term reversals to build
0: well they 're going to chance to get a lot more at the webinar coming up And again i 'll just reiterate it 's at ten fifteen uh, pacific time eleven fifteen mountain uh, but just go to mike 's money talks.ca. that 's the key go to mike 's money uh, CA. now you 're going to sign up because there is limited opportunity because of the technology, so the space is limited but here 's the thing I promised this I teased up front i 'm going to go with it now, and that is anyone who attends the seminar live at these times right now. They'll get an electronic copy of Tyler's book, The Mindless Investor. It is a great piece of work because it's so straightforward, gives you actionable uh, strategies and and techniques. The Mindless Investor. In the meantime, Tyler, I find uh, thanks so much for taking the time, making the book available to people uh, attending and doing the seminar Oh, hey, it's
2: great to be with you.
0: Oh, by the way, you can find Tyler at stockscores.com, stockscores.com. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. Now, you might recall this story. It was sort of late August into September. Laith Marouf, he's a Montreal activist. He had a long history of public anti-Semitic remarks, including at Concordia University. Well, he, along with his wife, received hundreds of thousands of tax dollars to fund their community media advocacy center under the guise of fighting racism. I mean, you really can't make this stuff up. To say Marouf's, uh, Marouf's Statements were extreme. That's an understatement. I'm going to give you just one example because they're so appalling. But on his Twitter account, for example, he described Jews as human garbage, human feces, little castrated bitches who deserve to die. As I say, that's just a flavor, but he'd been doing it for 20 years. So that's what's incredible. What's shocking is when the department, heritage department, who forked over the money, became aware of that anti Semitic history. They did it on July 19th. Well, they didn't revoke the funding for over a month, August 22nd. But of course, even more incredible is that no one in the department knew that the Community Media Advocacy Center was really only Maruf and his wife. More incredible still, maybe the most noteworthy aspect of the whole sordid affair is that no one in the Heritage Department did a background check on him. I mean, these anti-Semitic statements were very public. They didn't bother to do even like a cursory look at his postings on social media, they just forked over the shocking amount of $130,000 tax dollars because someone mentioned, I guess the words diversity and racism were good enough. I mean, the CRTC threw $32,147 in funding, obviously without doing any vetting of their own. But one more shocking number for those people who care how their tax dollars are spent. As Blacklocks reports, federal subsidies paid to Maroof's Advocacy Center, totals somewhere in the neighborhood of $600,000. No goals, no measurement, and obviously, without vetting. I guess just the right buzzwords. The shocking part is how casually our tax dollars are so regularly spent. Well, when you talk interest rates, as we've been chronicling here for the last several years, is the most interest rate sensitive area that impacts so many of us is what's gone on with the mortgage market, the housing market. And this past week's no exception, as I was alluding to with Mike Levy. You know, bottom line, let's bring in Ozzy Jurok here. Ozzy, let's start with the impact of this. I'll, I'll just tell a little, you know, my own personal story. As I, I, Obviously, I've been following this like every other analyst at a daily basis, but it's still, when I saw what the prime rate did yesterday, I mean, it was only the same, uh, you know, half a percent jump. But I still sort of shook my head thinking, what about the stress test, all of this kind of stuff. So let's dig into that.
3: Well, it's no question. Actually, you know, the financial community yesterday surprised me because they thought it was almost a gift to only have an increase of only a half a percent as they three quarter. But that half percent made a huge impact on me, and it really brings home, as you point out, if it goes now to prime at 5.95%, the stress test is 2% above what the best five-year term is, which happens to be now a whopping 5.79%. And that's the best five-year term. There's others that are higher. So it means the stress test now is 7.79, almost 8%. I mean,
0: and I know we've talked about the amount of buyers that now no longer qualify. But again, I was like you, that, that number just jumped out at me. Uh, if we were talking 20 to 25% of first time buyers now can't get a mortgage, I got to figure that pushed it up a little further.
3: No question. And when you, I was talking to Keaton Kirkwood who's was a mortgage broker, he said, hey, look, if you were a buyer and you had $100,000 in your pocket as a down payment, 10 months ago, you could have qualified for a $652,000 mortgage. 2 days ago you would have still qualified for 530,000 that's 130 as uh, 120,000 less but yesterday with that half percent you down another 25,000 so you now only qualify for 505,000 and that's the thing the very people that need we need to be the first time buyers can't now buy even if they have wow. 100 grand
0: well I got to repeat those numbers cuz that is incredible you know we go back to the first couple of months of the year you know, you got 100000 down, you could buy a $652,000 home. That's dropped after yesterday's jump to 505000 That's what you're eligible for. It's incredible. And, and that tells me also, Ozzy, why prices are always a little more stubborn in coming down. My experience is that people have a lot emotionally invested in their largest asset, which is housing. So they don't react to the housing market. But those people who must sell for whatever reason... Are sure. going to have to adjust the price, but that gives you a hint of how much that adjustment is.
3: You know, well, and as did... you, you're right, and as you and I talked about it, I mean the house prices, single family home prices in Toronto, are down thirty percent since February, and in Surrey they're down twenty five percent. That's reality. So whatever you read in the paper, house prices are up. That's over last year. But we live in very interesting times because what it means just for the existing person that has a mortgage, right? um yeah. now let's let's just for argument's sake say that you you owe six hundred seventy five thousand dollars and at two and a half percent your payment would have been two thousand six hundred dollars manageable high but manageable well just are you sitting down that is now at 5.79 percent is a whopping three thousand nine hundred or thirteen hundred more now that hurts yeah, I, and I think, that, I mean, I've been using this and
0: self-serving for money talks in this way, but my old expression, if you haven't been paying attention, it doesn't matter. You're going to get hit between the eyes. And if people don't appreciate, uh, this is exactly why, I, I mean, I'm risk averse and I, I, and I know that, but I always said I, I was not really in alignment with those people who said keep rates short term. I was a lock-in kind of guy simply because of the thing that you just said. You're gonna to get to a place where you can't afford it. You know, if you look at 2017, you got average mortgages, might be 2.7, whatever. And now you're gonna to come to renew five years later. Holy smokes, you know, you're talking big after tax dollars. And I am worried for a lot of people. I've heard from several people actually, and I know it's anecdotal, but just saying, I can't do this. You know, I can't cut enough around, you know, I'm certainly not gonna get a eight or ten thousand dollar raise you know, then pay taxes and have the rest after, uh, after tax to pay off these increases in my mortgage. Uh, yeah, it's a very worrisome
3: time. Yeah, and we talk, of course, we talk about larger mortgages, and but even at 400000 or 500000 the increase is dramatic. Yeah, I'd love to see somebody who could get into the market
0: in big centers like Vancouver, Montreal, Hamilton, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, Toronto, with only a four or five hundred thousand dollar mortgage, you know, with the prices yeah. so much higher. Right. But yeah, I think the point's well taken. I guess the question everybody has now is, okay, I'm stuck. I always hated this, by the way, with stocks. You tell someone to sell, sell, sell. They don't. The stock plunges, and then they ask, "Should I sell?" Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Or yeah. what should I? Should I lock in? Yeah, three, yeah. Uh, two and a half yeah. years ago. But <laughs> I guess that's the question people have. What do I do now? You know, when I'm sort of stuck. Uh, looking at yeah. these higher rates
3: yeah and and of course it depends exactly what position you're in and not in but from a first time by every also i was talking to kyle green and he says that that the rumor is now that we also increase in the down payment so you're going to have higher rates and the increase in down payment as you pointed out over and over again they want to crash the market and they're going to succeed yeah, well, they
0: are succeeding. You know, they they, they definitely have succeeded. And, and we'll see if there's more to come. I was a little more hopeful, by the way, as I was discussing with Mike Levy earlier in the show, uh, that they did sound, I thought, a little more dovish. Not just because of the half percent. Oh. I thought they were giving themselves time because I think the housing market has absolutely got their attention. I do not believe when they started to raise rates, they said, hey, I got a plan to cut activity by 50%. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think yeah. it surprised them. You know, uh, let's talk on a positive note, though. Okay, so Ozzy, last week we were talking about one of the positives was the number of people coming into the country, you know, and projected over the next three, four years. And of course, we already had a supply shortage, you know. Uh, So I feel that's sort of the bottom of the market or that's that creates a floor in the market. But we got more numbers this week.
3: Well, stats came up with uh, the newest report, which shows that 8.3 million people or 23% of the population are made of immigrants right now. And by the way, that record was previously broken in 1921, so you realize how unusual it is, because uh, immigrants are now tracking up to to being 34% of the population in the next 20 years. When between 2016 and 21, 1.3 million new immigrants settled permanently, They're mostly younger, but, well, we need them to be younger, Mike. You and I, who's Mm -hmm. going to pay our pension? We need the younger people. But also the interesting thing is that they're now four-fifths of the Canada's labor force growth. Four-fifths.
0: Yeah, I've often said uh, the only economic policy that I can recognize coming out of the federal government is the immigration policy like whether they think of it as that or not. But it's, I'm sure they understand the pension implications of getting more people in the workforce. But at any rate, yeah, I think it's uh, that stat you're giving is very important for future growth. But again, it just reemphasized my point that those people are going to, uh, you know, they're contributing to the economy, they need housing. And that brings me to the last thing today, Ozzy. And I'm not surprised, but we see these rising interest rates or at least discouraging some people in the development business at a time when we need supply.
3: Yeah, Zonda Urban Organization said that in the third quarter of 2022, there were 1,522 pre-sale condo sales. That's down a whopping 72% from the all-time peak last year of some 5,500 units. So that's fairly dramatic. In fact, lower than any one of the last uh, last five or, five or six years. And some of those projects may not be canceled, but they're moved forward into next year. So there's two in North Vancouver, the Lennox at Lonsdale by Polygon Homes and the Emerald by Evan Flow of 41 Town Homes. And they're all saying, look, we're launching it maybe in the spring. I guess what they're doing is they're seeing whether they'll launch them at all. Well, and and
0: to remind people that the pre-sales are important because they go for the next round of financing for the entire project. So without that, I mean, lenders don't have the same level of confidence that there's that demand out there. So it's kind of a vicious circle. And uh, I mean, again, though, let's come back to something you alluded to, is that the Bank of Canada is fully aware we're going to create unemployment with rising interest rates. In fact, they need that. That's one of their criteria. What's the labor market doing? And of course, right now we still have, you know, I'm ballparking, a million jobs wanting people. You know, yeah. so they need to change that uh, or they they say they need to change that. And as I say, this will be a great example that, you know, I, no one's going to be surprised. We have less employment in all of the peripheral businesses surrounding residential real estate.
3: The interesting thing, Mike, is that, yeah, it, it's tough and it's, it's all these things going on. But. We are a crazy people. We like a market. A good market is when 10 guys wrestle each other to the ground in the living room of the seller and then one emerges victoriously, having paid 100,000 more than the guy wants. Now we actually have the opportunity to go and buy something where the developer offers you pay the 5% GST, put only 5% down, maybe give you a car. You're locking the price in at today's rate in a 7% inflation world, maybe in five years it costs are is is 35 percent higher and you have locked in at today's rate and you don't have to wait five years for it so and then you say oh no no i'm gonna wait till i have to pay 100 more than the more. guy wants you know? no it, <laughs> and, it,
0: it, and that's why they call it a buyer's market you yeah. know and uh, the other side I, I nobody pays enough attention to these rising rates are great news for savers they have been punished artificially punished for the last several years So I I want to also say, so good news for buyers, good news for savers out there. And uh, as I say, I still think that level of uh, newcomers coming in creates a floor for the real estate market because that is uh, pent-up demand waiting to happen. So on a positive note, there you go, Ozzy. You said I couldn't do it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But in particular, since most of them, 90% of them settle into big cities. So we in Vancouver are certainly going to get them. Well, Mike, I just wanted to share with you something that Red Skelton said, and and I know it's it's kind of uh, unique. But as you get older, you want to look better. And my wife, she got herself a mud pack, and she just looked great for two days, uh, and and then the mud fell off. Ozzy, <laughs> <laughs> you are
0: wa- you are taking a walk on the wild side. Ozzy yeah. Jerk, send your send your notes to OzBuzz.ca. <laughs> That's Ozzy Jerk, OzBuzz.ca. Have a great week. Uh. Time now. I want to go to the trading desk and bring Victor Adair in here right now. You know, Vic, I know you talk about these turning points in the market and you talked about October 13th and man, you might start with a short covering rally and you might get other people jumping in and then the interpretation that the central banks aren't as uh, bearish as they were, you know, you know, in other words, pushing rates higher. Man, has the market ever responded to whatever variable people are focusing on?
4: Well, the On the October 13th date that I'm thinking is a key turn date here, not only for stocks, but also for bonds and the currency markets, on that date was when the American CPI data came out, and it was hotter than expected, which just kind of fed into the fears that the Fed was just going to be brutally relentless in pushing interest rates higher to try to kill inflation. So you can imagine, on October 13th, The the sentiment in the market was extremely bearish. People were people were shorting it. People were saying, I've got to be out of the market. I'm getting killed here. And then, you know, the the Dow, for instance, took off like a scalded cat. We're up about 4000 points or so, about 14 percent. And that's that's in 12 trading days. I mean, this is a, a violent rally that we're having here.
0: You know what's so surprising, though, for people is some of the headline stocks that we've become used to focusing on. And I'm thinking of Meta, which used to be Facebook. I'm thinking of Amazon. You know, these are really big names. While the market has had
4: the rally you just described, man, they've been getting killed. Well, certainly, you know, last year, big tech, what we call a big cap tech led the, the rally. And it's almost like, you know, what goes around comes around, I guess, you know, so they were the strongest to the upside last year and they're the weakest to the downside this year, kind of with the exception of Apple. I mean, Apple's still pretty special. But I think one of the things that's really driving this turn, Mike, is that a lot of money managers have had a horrible year. You know, whether you're in stocks or in bonds or stocks and bonds together, you've had a tough year. And if you're managing other people's money, you can't afford to miss this rally because you've had a horrible year. You know, your competitors might catch it and, you know, they're going to take away your client money. So there's definitely FOMO buying here, not only by retail, but also by institutional.
0: Yeah, it reminds me, we had James Thorne on a few months ago. And Jim always does a great job. And one of the things he talked about was exactly the rally taking place for that same motivation. And he called it the dash for trash. He says, Uh you know, once that market starts going, they've got to be in it, though, because if they're not in it after seeing a 25 percent down move in the markets, they got to catch the first, you know, the up move. Uh, You know, so it's also important to mention that he said we would get this rally. Then he looked for a drop very similar to Mark Leibovit about two weeks ago saying the same thing. He, he thought this rally would come. And so I, I guess I'm putting it out there, Vic, for no other reason than, you know, it's not this easy, you know, so just be a little bit careful.
4: Well, certainly the sentiment was really bearish at the market low. And that low in October the 13th was about a two-year low. You got to go back to the time when Joe Biden was getting elected and, and Pfizer announced they'd discovered a, a vaccine and so on. And now, there's a couple other things. The seasonal trade. If you go back and look at what the stock market generally does throughout the year, it is seasonally strong from late October right into the end of the year. Also, the corporate the corporations that do the big buybacks had their hands tied for a couple of weeks there during earnings season, and now they're going to be back and forth. So. You know, there's just been a lot of reasons here as to why a market got trapped being too low. And now it's, it's jumping out to the upside.
0: Yeah, you speak of buybacks, though, and I can't help myself here. Talking about, uh, you know, Facebook meta, you know, it had these huge buyback programs. Averaging, are you ready? $300 a share. Now, you know, hit under 100 bucks. I mean, the losses in those buybacks look just horrendous, though. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars wasted.
4: I think the the market cap of Facebook is down about 800 billion from its high point, where, where that was two years ago. Mike, before we run out of time, we got to also mention the bond market. Yeah, uh, and I I, the, I always am watching the bond market. On October 13th, the 10-year yield on the U.S. Treasury hit a 15-year high at 4.35 percent. And we've also had here, I guess, the last week or so, the mortgage rate, the long term mortgage rate. And in the States, they have people mostly use a 30 year mortgage. It's now gone above 7%. That's a 20 year high on that uh, 30 year mortgage. And the spread between the yield on the bonds and the mortgages is like record wide. And I think what that's all about is anybody that's going to lend anybody money for a mortgage needs an extra risk premium because you know the real estate market prices are coming down sales are down and and so on so the 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 net effect of having interest rates go up so fast here has really rippling through the economy and i guess the big question is is the fed going to stop raising rates so aggressively or is are they just going to keep going and maybe push the economy into a nasty recession yeah, that's the debate. And, uh,
0: you know, it's going to be interesting. I was amazed how many uh, analysts were sort of parsing every syllable that was in the you know Bank of Canada statement, Federal Reserve statements around the world, Bank of England. You mentioned the European Central Bank, all of that. And I guess, you know, the consensus I was seeing is they thought maybe they weren't quite as hawkish, you know, in other words, pushing rates up. Maybe not. So it's going to be interesting because wishful thinking is going to get punished no matter which direction the market goes, no matter what time period. But uh, I'm not brave enough at this point. I'm more what Ryan Irvine told us a week ago. He says, hey, if you can find some great value, you know, that's a Warren Buffett approach. Fair enough. But if you're chasing, you better be a trader like Victor Adair is what I'd say.
4: Well, certainly the, the value stocks have been outperforming the growth stocks. I mean, and growth was dominated by big cap tech, that there is that. I've got to mention that the Canadian uh, Bank of Canada here raised rates only a half a point. The market seemed to be yeah. expecting 75 bips. So that may be fed into this thinking that the central banks collectively are going to start to slow down the rate of change. And, and the, the rationalization might be you know, they've raised rates so much so fast. Maybe they should back off a little bit and see what impact that has had because there is a lag, you know, it's not like you hit somebody and he falls down right away, you know, that they've put these rates up and then it takes some time for the, the damage really to get done.
0: Yeah, that's what Michael Levy and I were chatting about that. I, I wasn't, you know, as impressed by the, you know, consensus saying 75 basis points, the reality 50 basis points. I just thought they bought some time to see exactly what you've just alluded to, Vic, have, have we slowed down more? Is it past just interest rate sensitive, like big ticket items and real estate, you know, has it now seeped into other areas? So I I think this is one of those, as I say, I can't recall a time. I I know there were times when people paid close attention to what central banks were doing. I can't recall a time when it was all about what central banks were doing.
4: Yeah, it certainly seems that way. We've got to touch on the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar made a 20-year high, I guess it was last month or maybe a little bit before that, but on October 13th, it kind of popped up again and looked like maybe it was going to make another high, and then it turned lower. So you've got three major markets here, the stock market going higher, bond yields going lower, and the U.S. dollar going lower as of that October 13 date, and why that's so important is when I see three different markets kind of all reacting the same, then I think this may be a significant turn. And I try to adjust my trading accordingly.
0: Well, we'll be here to chronicle it, Vic. I invite people to go to victoradare.ca. victoradare.ca. I know you're going to have an interesting week, Vic. Enjoy it. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. First, a bit bit of context for you. You know, politicians and other supporters of censorship consistently point to misinformation or fake news as needing to be stopped by government intervention. Well, the federal government put forward three separate bills, by the way, that would restrict content on social media. And all three were met with strong opposition from Canada's leading experts. But that brings me to this week's Goofy Award, which goes to the CBC. Remember, $1.4 billion subsidized Crown Corporation, whose head, Catherine Tate, calls in quotes, a beacon of truth. She goes on to state in quotes, the challenge is how to protect and defend our citizenry from this unbelievable tsunami of disinformation. You know, in her testimony before the Commons Heritage Committee in 2019, The CBC head went on to declare in quotes, at a time when disinformation is undermining trust in our institutions and democracy, we remain Canadians most trusted source of news and information. I mean, there is so much to say about that comment, but I'm going to restrict myself to the ongoing hearings into the Declaration of the Emergencies Act, which has featured the CBC as the perpetrator of a significant amount of outright false and misleading information. Allow me just to give you a couple of examples. Attorney General David Lemeny, in testimony before the Joint Committee on the Declaration of the Emergency, April 26th, he named the CBC as a source for the unfounded claim that the convoy was foreign-funded. This is a a claim that I still hear or read. You know, at the time, the CBC claimed to have done extensive research but later admitted they had no supporting evidence. CBC's radio, The World This Hour, broadcast a false story they later had to retract it, that the convoy crowdfunding was cancelled, in quotes, over questionable donations. Again, no evidence to back it up. You know, from the outset, though, CBC News, this is from February 10th, claimed, in quotes, that questions have emerged how protesters raised so much money so quickly and where it came from. Well, the Financial Transactions and Report Analysis Centre found that contributions, in fact, were from small Canadian donors which they rated as harmless. And that was a conclusion supported by Juan Benitez. He's president of GoFundMe, who in direct testimony to the Commons Finance Committee, March 3rd said, he's looking at the bank records, credit card records. Our records show 88% of donation funds originated in Canada. 86% of donors were from Canada. In quotes, we stepped up our donations review and proactively did that review of foreign sources. There was just not a significant foreign contribution. 12% of the donations came outside of Canada. And again, as Barry uh, McKillop, he's the director, uh, deputy director of the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Centre, he testified February 24th, said the same thing. Basically said there were people around the world who were fed up with COVID, were upset and saw the demonstrations. I believe they just wanted to support the cause. End of quotes. You know what? The CBC misinformation didn't stop there. It wasn't just on foreign funding. I mean, they also falsely reported the Freedom Condoy supporters were caught on camera dancing on the tomb of the unknown soldier. No, it wasn't. It was an incident involving a local woman. No connection. CBC also falsely claimed economic losses from the protests totaled up to $200 million. Actual compensation, $12.9 million. And finally, it was the CBC who, without, again, any foundation, suggested on January 28th, in quotes, Russian actors could be continuing to fuel things as this protest grows, or perhaps even instigating from the outside. Well, they just had their investigation, internal investigation wrap up, and the CBC ombudsman Jack Nagler called the claim unfit to broadcast. Well, that's a good description of so much of what was covered in the convoy. I don't care where you stand on it, but I think accuracy is important to inform our opinions. I mean, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the CBC had some other agenda. But the bigger point surrounds the push for censorship is that politicians, others in favor of clamping down on misinformation, never consider themselves part of the problem, despite the fact that they are regularly the purveyors of misdealing statements. And at the time I've just alluded to, of course, the CBC's coverage of the trucker's convoy illustrates that. That's all the time we have this week. A couple of things for you, though. Remember, you can go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, and you can sign up for our free email blast that comes out a couple times a week. Lots of interesting quotes, different kinds of information. And just a reminder, of course, I hope you go to Money Talks Tweet, recommend it to your friends, family, that kind of thing. I tell you, every week I can give you lots of information you're not getting in the mainstream. Go to Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, and of course, mikesmoneytalks.ca, where you can also get some details on this year's coming World Outlook Conference. Save the date, tickets go on sale, and I guess about a week's time. Again, February 3rd and 4th at the Bayshore Inn. Yes, we're live in person again, 2023. I'm looking forward to seeing you. I hope you join us there. And in the meantime, I hope you have a terrific week.
3: This is the Money Talks Podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.